Well, welcome to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Uh, just a couple of show notes here. Joel and I are headed to Copenhagen for Wind Europe, and we're going to be enjoying all the sights and sounds of Copenhagen, and it's going to be a big event, Joel. Yeah, exciting. We've uh, got a bunch of meetings scheduled. I know the, the insurance world is going to be there, the wind world, innovation, OEMs, uh, a lot of ISPs, asset owners, all kinds of new technology. So always excited to see what that one, that show looks like. And it's going to be just a precursor to just a couple weeks right before our big ACP show in the United States. So we'll be able to see what are the Europeans doing? What is the rest of the world doing on that side of the pond? And then three weeks later, come back and we will both be in uh, for ACP in New Orleans as well uh, for that week. And um, it's always interesting to see. We'll see if we can't bring some uh, bring some technology back with us, maybe. Yeah. Well, WindPower Lab, WeatherGuard, Lightning Tech and Ping share booze at these events. So there's always some activity around us. So stop by if, if you're in Copenhagen or going to be in, in New Orleans. We, we would love to see you. Well, and this week we have a, a bunch of really interesting stories the wind industry is picking up because it's springtime in america and and springtime in Europe and all the projects are starting. So Joel, why don't you give us the highlights of what's happening this week? So we're going to talk about RWE. So a German company, RWE, using a, another German company for an innovation project. They're looking at prefabricated foundations for a repowering. Uh, it's a pilot project. I don't know if it's technically repowering because they're tearing the old turbines down, put new foundations and everything in, but uh, they're going to use prefabricated foundations, which is really cool. Uh, and then we'll jump back onto this side of the pond as well. We'll talk about the first U.S. built offshore wind service ship uh, reaching a milestone, 50% complete. Edison Schwest down in Louisiana doing their part for the transition. Um, and on the coattails of that conversation, we're going to talk a little bit about Dominion Energy's use of uh, non-U.S. flagged vessels uh, in some of the site exploration work that they're doing uh, for their projects at Virginia. And then we're going to talk about Estel getting into liquid air energy storage and talk about how that kind of technology fits into the energy storage um, ecosystem as a whole. Um, and then we've got a US-Japan team that has a breakthrough in hydrogen boron plasma fusion. Um, let's talk about how that fits into the energy transition. And then finally, the wind farm of the week is Red Barn Wind Park Project in Grant County, Wisconsin. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and Australian renewables guru, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, in an effort to reduce the amount of uh, pollution that is generated when putting in wind turbines, RWE is testing prefabricated foundations for an upcoming repowering project in Germany. Uh, they're replacing a 1.8 megawatt turbine with a 5.7 megawatt machine. Wow, that's a big difference. Uh, the foundations is going to be made of precast concrete and weighs 270 metric tons, which is 80% lighter than traditional foundations. Wow. Uh, the foundation was developed by Smart and Green Anchor Foundations, and only a third, it uses only a third of the amount of steel and concrete normally used for poured standard foundations. Now, Rosemary, this seems like a pretty good idea because one of the issues about pouring foundations is how many concrete trucks it takes to bring the concrete to the site. So instead of using 120 concrete mixers, they're going to use 30 uh, truck trips. Uh, to bring the, the foundations in, then they're just going to get bolted together on site. 
And then when they're done, Joel, they can just take the foundations apart and move them on to another location, possibly, or bury them, I guess. Uh, it's just concrete. So this is a really interesting project. And, and, you know, Joel, you and I have been to a couple of places recently, and Rosemary uh, has probably seen this too. RWE is investing in a number of innovative ideas. And this is one of them. And they've been doing some really good technical presentations over the last couple of weeks. So is, this uh, prefab concrete foundation is another one of those uh, RWE funded innovations. This is good. So Green Anchor, uh, Green Anchor Foundations is they're they're German as well. So RWE, the the home the home base is Germany. The, they got this right outside their door. I think it's fantastic because uh, it's. And I was talking with a friend of mine that's a civil engineer, and we were walking through the solution. This was a couple weeks ago, and and I said. You know, the difference between pouring in place with big mesh bars and all the steel and everything. Uh, and, and he's and I asked him, I said, OK, so when you build things for civil engineering purposes, whether it's bridge beams, blah, 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 blah I said, pour it in place with with grid or post tension or pretension. So post tension and pretension. And this, this is how these things are built. So, so, so for our user or listeners. So the, you pour a, the concrete in a cast and you run a cable through it. And that cable, you put tension on it either beforehand, before the concrete cures or after the concrete cures. And what that does is it holds the whole concrete together um, it, it, with a higher PSI. So it's almost like putting bar in it, but you're putting pressure on it as well. And Rosemary, it goes to, to your case all the time. It's not just about the building of the item itself, it has a lot to do CO2 wise with all the transportation back and forth. So they're really trying to address transportation, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds good for that point of view. And also I'm working on a video on um, cement at the moment for my YouTube channel, cement is like 7% of the world's emissions. So it's, uh, it, it's definitely uh, something where we're going to have to start paying attention. And I think that m making, yeah, prefab cement probably makes it easier to get some of the new technologies in there. You can, you know, use um, different kinds of materials in the cement that will actually capture carbon during the curing. Um, and yeah, there's a few, few other technologies underway. So I hope that they would be able to, you know, start implementing some of those. Um, and then the other thing, just as, you know, someone that's been involved in um, wind turbine construction projects, you know, I've, I've seen, and we've talked about it a few times on the channel, where there's been defects in the foundations that um, either, you know, cause turbines to collapse or they at least, you know, once they realise that there's a problem, then you'll have to shut down potentially a whole whole wind farm um, while they, you know, fix those foundations. So I guess that it would be a way to avoid so many of those. Also, when you're trying to install turbines in um, really cold climates you know you get a really sh short window of um a construction window because you've got to allow for the cement to cure the um yeah concrete to cure and yeah if you're prefabbing then i would expect that that would open up a much longer window for um yeah for getting your foundations in the ground which would definitely you know that's a big a big deal if you've got a big wind farm in a, a cold climate and you're trying to work within weather windows it um you know it makes things hard because obviously yeah, the weather is not you know, totally predictable um so even sometimes when you're like okay yeah we're gonna be manufacturing right up to the middle of of autumn um sometimes it gets cold sooner than that and you're left with a few <laughs> a few foundations short of your wind farm um for another year well it really goes into what the doe 
here in the States, the Department of Energy has been pushing for offshore wind to, to lower the cost of offshore wind. This is a really good way to lower the cost of onshore wind. And it, it seems like these initiatives are coming from the operators taking it, uh, the initiative themselves uh, to, to, to drive costs out of onshore wind. And I think you're right, right? If you can prefab a bunch of concrete tower bases in a row, that's the most efficient way to do it instead of making a couple in April, then waiting till September to make a couple of more. If you're constantly producing these these foundations out of the factory, that's the most efficient use of the factory and it's going to produce the lowest cost product, right, Joel? Yeah, I think uh, you're, you're spot on there. And one of the things that I like about this solution that RWE is taking it on is that you're, when you have an innovation that's driven by market capital, like capitalism, right, and not driven by grant funding and all this stuff, usually it has more staying power. Right, because the market has demanded it, it's actually more cost effective. You're saving money, all the all the advantages of it, but it's not being subsidized. It's actually just like, hey, this is just a good solution that's going to save us some money, and it works. Those are the kind of solutions that stay around longer, and uh, and scale faster. Yeah, I think this idea is really uh, interesting, and I, I hope that they get some early results from it and start using it in other places like the United States, because it would be a big cost saver at the end of the day. And that's where we need to go. Well, as we get closer to having some offshore wind turbines in the United States, we need some SOVs, some surface service operation vessels. Uh, and we're building one in Louisiana. So the first uh, first of those ships is 50% complete. So Louisiana-based shipbuilding company Edison Schwest Offshore is manufacturing the SOV. And it's going to be a 260-foot-long vessel called Eco Edison. And they're making the ship for Orsted and for Eversource. And it's supposed to be done in 2024. That's that's a good sign. Things are rolling along quite nicely. You know, Edison Schwest has got a huge uh, and storied history in the Gulf. So a lot of a lot of vessels, a lot of uh, operations, and a lot of um, some support for the energy sector has come out of Louisiana from Edison Schwest for many, 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 many years. Um, when we talk about Louisiana boat captains going up into the, the North Sea a few months back and how that helped with the oil industry. These were, this is where the boat captains came from. Uh, Edison Schwest is, uh, I've, I've been on their vessels. They do a good job uh, at maintaining them. Uh, really cool that they're the ones that are building it. Um, I think some of this design comes from a lot of, uh, iterations of North Sea SOVs, right? So there, Orsted was a part of it. I mean, Orsted's one of the one of the people that have been playing in that that realm for so long. So they know, hey, we like this in an SOV. We like, we don't like this. We want, you know, this this layout for our walk to work platforms and this and that. So this vessel is brand new, state of the art. Uh, the, it's going to be super comfortable. I think it's, I think it houses basically 60 people as a, it's a floating hotel on work boat, right? So they're out there in the wind farm and they can do, they can run back in if they need to, or they can do shift changes at sea, I would imagine with it. Um, but yes, 60 uh, wind techni turbine technicians, I think can be on this vessel at any time. And I'm not sure if that includes the, um, the uh, ship crew, you know, you got cooks and all, all the, all the, the pilots and everybody, everybody like that. But, um, yeah, excited to see this one coming out of Louisiana, built in the U.S., Jones Jones Act compliant. We'll see some more of these. And I think uh, Edison Schwest will, uh, there'll be there'll be a lot of vessels that come out of that port facility. So this uh, ship's going to be used for three wind sites, South Fork Wind, which is uh, taking place right about now. It's getting getting much closer uh, to being reality. Sunrise, Sunrise Wind and Revolution Wind, so all those off the east coast of the United States around New York. 
and um, which they're all coming pretty soon, right? So they got to get this ship done. And it, as Joel, you were saying, it has that walk to work motion compensated gangway. And if you have, have you watched pictures of those gangways? Like they're really complicated little devices to, to keep the, oh, have you? Because it looks treacherous. I don't know how those things work, but boy, that's impressive. It's really, I'll, t- I'll tell you kind of the, some of the gist behind them is, is it, it, they have a really, really, really expensive um, inertial measurement unit built into them. So in the world, you'd call it an IMU. It's the same thing your your iPhone has in it. When you when you turn your iPhone, when you have Google Maps up, it kind of knows where you're going, but not really. There's an IMU in here, in your phone, that costs $2. There's an IMU on that walk-to-work platform that costs $100,000. <laughs> and it's sometimes they're, they're of the quality of the same kind of guidance system that would compensate for gyros for like guidance for cruise missiles and stuff like that. So they have update rates of motion sensing and angular sensing in the, you know, 100 to 1,000 hertz. So 1,000 times a second, it'll update where what angle it's at. And then it has a feedback control mechanism into those uh, the pressure rams and pumps that kind of just like. So when you watch them, you can watch the vessel move like this and, and pitch and heave all over the place. And that walk to work just stays it's it's ama- it's really amazing. I, they make cranes like that too. It's super cool. Well, it seems like this is going to be put to good use in the near future, and that's a good sign. So it's the first of a couple of Jones X vessels that are being in, in the process of being built. This one being the first, obviously. So more more to come, and uh, yeah, this this is interesting tech. Hey, uptime listeners, we know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So there's a dispute with Dominion Energy off the coast of Virginia at the moment and there's a dispute with the offshore marine service association umsa which released a video a couple of weeks ago accusing dominion energy of using non-us flag vessels for unexploded ordnance surveys off the coast of virginia and uh, one can well imagine there's probably a bit of unexploded ordnance because that's where the navy ships a lot of navy ships operate out of there so in 2020 dominion energy stated that it would use us flag vessels for this uh, unexploded ordnance surveys, and the Dominion submitted solicited bids from four U.S. vessel operators, but none of them were accepted. Instead, uh, Dominion chose two foreign flag vessels, and which were also foreign and crewed. And this has set off a little bit of a firestorm in the United States um, because there's such a push from the administration to use u- union workers and union ships and all all that good stuff, and it seems like that's not really taking place in some of these early uh, efforts. And I, I, you know, obviously there's two sides to this dispute. Dominion disputes the OMS's claims and say, quote, we follow a competitive and thorough review process to contract with vessels performing survey work for coastal Virginia offshore wind. We require the firms performing work on our behalf to comply with all laws, codes, and regulations, including the Jones Act. Now, Joel, that's a really pointedly worded statement, which dances around the fact 
that they're using non-U.S. vessels because you don't have to come on shore, right? That's that's where the Jones Act falls into place is that if it, if they hit shore in the United States, it would have to be a U.S. flagged and U.S. manned vessel. But if they don't, they can be from anywhere. And that's what how Dominion is getting through this, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and the other thing I believe they probably aren't doing is if someone was to say, okay, are you auditing these? And can you give us an audit report on it? I, I don't know that for sure, but that that would be the next uh, logical step I would take, right? Um, so yeah, if these are if these flags are, or if these vessels are coming in from the Marshall Islands and, and they're loaded with fuel there, they're loaded with people there, loaded with food there, and they come out and do the survey and then leave and go back to them, that is a way around some of the Jones Act stuff. Now there is some um, mileage from shore things and stuff, and I'm not 100% sure on what they are, but there is ways around some of these things. And this is a very well worded statement. You're 100% correct from Dominion. So um, I would like to see, like, if they wanted to, if they wanted to quell this, then they would put out some audit reports and make them public and say, hey, this is this is what happened, or and this is what's going on in our sites, because. Uh, Offshore Marine Service Association. If you're if you're if you're watching LinkedIn and you're watching these guys, they're they're making this very well known and trying to push it up to the top levels of our federal government as well to uh, raise awareness of what's going on out there. I've seen a lot of stories about this in the last couple of weeks, and I thought I should highlight it because this is not going to go away. And when other opportunities for uh, U.S. vessels to be used come up, I'm wondering if that's going to be the choice. And I've seen some discussion about Block Island. That was several years ago, right? Block Island was off the coast of Rhode Island. And there are still ship owners over there really upset by they, they used some foreign vessels to do some of that work. And they felt like Rhode Island um, ship owners should have got some of that business. So there's more to come here. But I just really think, can we just use some U.S. operators once in a while? Can we try that? Yeah, I mean, a UXO survey is not, it's not like you're contracting a specialized, big, heavy dollar vessel, right? These vessels exist in the U.S. I, I've been on a few of them. I know who who owns them. They were formerly flagged U.S. vessels. They were made in the United States, Joel. Th- these vessels are made in the United States, and they, they reflagged them in Marshall's Islands. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's just a way of working around the system. Whoever the operator is of them is just hiding from some taxes. Unfortunate, but here's we are. Here we are. Some interesting news from Orsted. Uh, they are looking at storing energy via liquid air systems. And you say to yourself, "What? <laughs> Why?" Well, uh, Orsted and British energy storage company Highview Power uh, think that 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 wind power and liquid air storage may help deliver some of the uh, flexibility needed in the grid in the United Kingdom. And Highview high Power is the is a developing the technology here, but essentially what they're doing is they're just compressing uh, air and storing it, and it can be used anywhere between four hours and several days down the road. So it's kind of a nice middle ground in terms of energy storage. Uh, what the technology does is it it uses electricity to cool air until it liquefies, and then it's it's stored in a cryogenic energy storage tank at minus 190 degrees Celsius. Joel, that's pretty cold. That's worse than Wisconsin in January. Yikes! Uh, so, uh, so they're already pre- preparing uh, to deploy the technology in a number of locations, and including a 50-megawatt, 300-megawatt-hour project near Manchester, home of uh, Man United and Man City football teams. 
So, Rosemary, this is a really interesting piece because it's basically using available um, technology, nothing really complicated here, and an error is free, uh, and to use it as a storage means. Is this an efficient way to do it? Is it just because it's so flexible, it can be done anywhere sort of technology? Or is it just we have so much energy, we don't know what to do with it, so let's just store it in liquid air and then we get some return on our, our storage investment? Yeah, so liquid air energy storage is uh, it's a lot like, I mean, there's at least a dozen ways of storing energy that, you know, don't use very complicated stuff. Um, so liquid air, compressed air, energy storage is similar. You just take, take air, you use energy to compress it, and then you get that energy back when you allow it to expand. And um, yeah, the expanding air drives a turbine, which makes electricity. So very simple. Um, it's all things that, you know, we, we know how to do using, um, you know, like really normal components. Um, so we could have been doing it, you know, 50 years ago if we'd wanted to, but we never needed to until now. And so that's kind of basically the description for why we've all of a sudden got all of these new energy storage technologies that aren't really new at all they're you know like you see gravity energy storage which is basically like a grandfather clock and i guess compressed air is like you know a, a bike a bike pump you you pump up your tires and then you let the valve out and make it you know turn a turbine you can you know you can imagine how easy that is to um the the principle is so simple um but yeah why now because now we have a, a need to store energy and I don't know. The article that I read about this was saying, you know, this is a solution to curtailment of energy um, because when it's a super windy day or, you know, in Australia, we more often have like a super sunny um, midday period, then you've got a lot of renewables on the grid. And so you might have so much that you can't use it all. And so you waste some. Um, and I think that that's a really silly way to think about the need for this because I think people need to get away from being worried about, um, you know, waste wasting a little bit of renewable energy. I mean, the wind and the sun come for, for free and what we should be aiming for is a cheaper, cheapest overall system. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to overbuild your wind and solar a little bit than to start building liquid air um, energy storage to, you know, capture all of that, that waste. So um, yeah, I guess it depends. Would you rather waste money or would you rather waste a little bit of wind? Um, so I'll get that little tiny rant out of the way. Um, but then, yeah, in terms of liquid air or um, compressed air, they're pretty similar, but liquid air just it allows it to be done on a smaller scale is probably the, the bigger benefit because you compress it so much that it doesn't take up very much space. If you want to do compressed air energy storage, you need somewhere huge to store all that air, compress it a little bit further, and then um, you can store it in tanks and stuff. Um, so you could put it anywhere, but it is at the cost of a little bit of wasted, more wasted energy. So there aren't actually any really big versions of either of them that exist yet. It's like mature technology. We know it would work, but no one has actually done it yet to, you know, be really sure about efficiencies, but it's going to be something like 60, 70%, um, depending on, you know, how much of the, the heat that you can, um, you can reuse for, you know, you got to move heat from one part of the process to the other to um, crank the efficiency up a little bit. So yeah, 60, 70% efficient, which if you compare that to like lithium ion batteries are at least um, in the high eighties, maybe pushing 90%. So, um, you know, it's a little bit worse than that. It's a little bit worse than pumped hydro, for example. 
Um, but in general, because you're talking about energy that would otherwise have been curtailed, then the efficiency doesn't matter nearly as much as the cost. So you're just trying to come up with the lowest cost energy storage system. Compressed air, liquid air also have the advantage of being um they're suitable for a longer duration of energy storage. So you usually see when these projects are, there's been a lot planned and then scrapped over the last five or 10 years. Um, and hopefully now we're going to see some that actually get, get built and used, but they're usually aiming for at least six hours and maybe up to even 15 hours of, of storage. So, um, you know, longer than what batteries can economically provide currently. Well, so here's the, here's the financial piece, which I think plays into it. And I want to ask you about the structural piece. So Orsted saying over the last winter, uh, the UK could have stored as much as 1.35 terawatt hours of wind energy. And instead, they spent, UK spent $60 billion on gas power, or 60 billion pounds, sorry, 60 billion pounds on gas power. So there's now because gas prices are so high, maybe this starts to make sense. From the turbine's perspective, is it better to have their turbine spinning and producing power rather than idled? And I think the answer is yes, right? As we get to these bigger blades and some of the structural issues we're seeing with them, it appears like it's better to keep the turbine spinning. It's, it's actually less stressful and will extend the life of the turbine if it's creating power. So it's kind of a win-win, right? Yeah, I think um, that, um, you know, however many terawatt hours, 1.35 terawatt hours um, figure that would have been wasted and how many homes it could power. I think that that's a real, um, I don't know if it's a red herring or if it's just bordering on dishonest, I think, because, uh, you know, that's this isn't seasonal energy storage. This is, you know, it's going to be something like 10, 10, 15 hours of energy storage. So um, it's not going to give you the difference between generating too much energy in winter compared to um, not enough or, yeah, it's, it's not going to be making seasonal differences. And if you were going to build an energy system that never needed to curtail any energy, then it would be so expensive. You would need so much, you know, compressed air energy storage that, um, you know, it'd be, be ridiculous. It's way cheaper to overbuild your wind and solar um, and then, yeah, and, and waste some than it is to try and store every single electron that could have been generated. And so I've done a, a few um, like off-grid or mini-grid or micro-grid design, system designs where, you know, you've, you've got um, – you got some energy user that doesn't have the ability to connect to the grid and then you try and design them what's the, you know, a robust system that also, you know, doesn't cost too much and what mix of wind, solar, battery storage, you know, other kinds of energy storage um, would you need for that? And you usually see at least like 20% overbuilding of wind and solar um, up to about 30 or even more depending on the specifics of the location. But it's always around that is the cheapest thing, you know, wasting wasting that much. And if you look at any scenarios for that that have you, you know designed a 100% renewable electricity grid, they've always got overbuilding because when you put the economics into your model, it's going to tell you don't try and store every electron um, 
you got to minimize the amount of storage that you need. That's the way to make the cheapest um, system. So you only want storage for the times when you've got way more or way less um, power available than what people are using, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does in absence of the regulatory system that exists in the United Kingdom at the moment. So as we've seen a number of stories come out of the UK that uh, developing a new wind site is taking a much longer than they had planned. And Orsted obviously knows that because they're right in the front lines of those discussions. So is, is Orsted's approach then saying, hey, UK, if we're going to take 10 years to get a new wind farm online and to add that extra wind energy, solar energy that we're eventually going to need in the interim, it's probably faster to get permitted for an air storage system, wouldn't you think? I think that it would. But it's not It's not nearly big enough. You wouldn't need an air storage system. You would need like an absolute fleet of them. So, you know, like a really big compressed air energy storage system or liquid air. Well, liquid air would be smaller, but a compressed air one might be 500 megawatts. Um, that'd be, you know, I don't think that one that large exists, but there are plans to make some that large. Um, and so, you know, you have that for like 10 hours. You think that adding one of those to the UK is going to meaningfully uh, affect the security of their supply from um, wind farms or, you know, make their usage of their existing wind farms so much more efficient that they don't need to build another one. It's it's going to be absolutely absolutely at the margins um so you you need it definitely but it's not even though you know in the name it says long duration energy storage that kind of makes people think oh okay yeah this is going to make everything nice and secure so now you know we take the energy from storms and then we use it you know like three weeks later when there isn't much wind that's not what it's for it's for you know it's much more for filling in the gap between okay yeah we had lots of solar power um during the day but then it's in the evening evening that people want to use a lot of electricity so we're shifting it for that or yeah there was a lot of wind power overnight when no one was using much so we're going to shift it so we can use it the next day that's that's the kinds of shifts that we're talking about with these kinds of energy storage um so i do find like a lot of reporting on this and you know it's um it's pushed also in the press releases from the companies working on these projects they're they're really they're pretty much lying about what it's for you know like they will evoke all this imagery of you know like a, a, a storm um and this power was wasted in this year and so we will be able to you know um use that for you know the following year or something like they don't explicitly say that's what our system's going to do but that's how they set the stage for why we need this technology and it's not at all what the use case is for the use case is not that different from what a lithium-ion battery can do it's just you know instead of economically shifting power you know by two or four hours like lithium-ion batteries do now we're talking 10 hours um so it's it's very valuable to the system but it's not the <laughs> silver bullet solution that the press releases always make it sound like okay i'm gonna take your word for it so we want to make elon even richer <laughs> uh, so i'm gonna shift gears a little bit and ask you a question then so when it comes to we're talking about liquid uh, air storage right what is an advantage of liquid air storage over Lithium-ion batteries over pumped hydro over is like so. Where does it fit within these things, and what are the advantages of it? Because one of them that comes to my mind is doesn't depend on rare earth minerals, right? So, w what other advantages are there? Yeah. So, I, I mean, 
Lithium ion batteries aren't, they don't really have the problem with, they have critical minerals in them, um, but not rare earth so much. So rare earth is mostly for if you've got like motors or generators. Um, so, I mean, maybe compressed air would, would depend on rare earths if you're, you know, going to put a um, super magnet in your, your generator. You Probably not because you probably don't care about the size. Um, so I think the, the rare earths... People use rare earths and critical minerals interchangeably now, um, so maybe I should get on board with that, but for now I'm still fighting that fight every time I hear it. Um, but, yeah, so advantages compared to lithium-ion batteries, it should be cheaper for the energy stored. So power um, batteries, lithium-ion batteries are really good at providing cheap power, but they can't um, provide cheap energy. So, you know, the longer that you want to store your um, power for, the more hours that you want. So then, therefore, the more energy that you want that costs a lot for lithium-ion batteries and so basically all of the other energy storage systems are, are all trying to make a point of difference with lithium-ion batteries in terms of the energy storage being cheaper so it should be cheaper for long durations and the longer the duration the bigger the difference to um, lithium-ion batteries and then yeah you compare compared to all the other kinds of energy storage. Um, so I guess the two big ones would be pumped hydro and thermal energy storage systems. Um, pumped hydro, you need some elevation difference. So usually 100 metres at, at least for a, a small system um, to be economical. So if you don't have a 100 metre hill where you can put a reservoir at the top and a reservoir at the bottom, then you can't really have pumped hydro. So that would be... Um, an advantage compared to pumped hydro um, and then yeah for thermal energy storage I mean it's I, I don't think that we really know which which of these kinds of technologies is going to win out um, because the big ones haven't been made yet so they all use really simple components and you can definitely make a paper design that's going to get you pretty close with any of these technologies but then it's going to be and you know the the operation of it and, you know, just small details that you find out from building it. So I would say, you know, there's all these horses in the race and it's pretty hard to say which one's going to um, win or not win. Um, yeah, so we'll see. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So in California, TAE Technologies has been working with Japan's National Institute for Fusion Science. And they've completed a, a couple of tests with hydrogen boron uh, in a magnetically confined plasma, which could generate fusion power at lower costs uh, than the existing approach, which is using uh, hydrogen variants, deuterium and tritium in the fusion process. Uh, so the, this little hydrogen boron process does not create any radioactive materials, uh, and it's, it's supposedly capable of powering the planet essentially forever. Now, they're, they're thinking that they can get a design together by and up on the grid by 2030, and as discussed in some of the press releases, um, it's using very standardized stuff. Basically, uh, let, me, well, let me read it. It says, most fusion efforts around the world are focused on combining uh, deuterium, uh, tritium, 
hydrogen isotopes for use as fuel, and the donut-shaped tokamak machines commonly used are limited to the deuterium-tritium fuels. Unlike those efforts, the new design uses an advanced accelerator being being-driven field reverse configuration that is versatile and can accommodate all fusion fuel cycles. So if I read a couple more articles about this, Rosemary, just trying to get a sense of what the hell is going on. And what it sounds like is that they were trying to clean out uh, one of their fusion containment devices and they had boron in there to do that. And they realized that they were getting alpha particles out of this process, which should not have been there to begin with. And realize, hey, uh, the only way we're creating alpha particles is there's a fusion process going on. And that fusion process isn't like the fusion process of old where there's sort of banging two hydrogens together to make a helium and, and a massive amount of energy comes off. It's a lot less energy than a, a typical hydrogen fusion reaction. So they think this has some – is more energy coming out than is going in, not huge amounts, but they think they can dial this process in. Which is interesting because I think one of the issues with the hydrogen process is that we just can't get it to – we can't sustain it. We don't have a way to sustain it. So maybe there's a, a basically a lower energy fusion process that is more controllable and less expensive. And this is – this I think may have applications. But when I read about it in the press, it's like they're talking about uh, you know imaginary things. It's like, oh, in, in Harry Potter world, they can create fusion. That's just, this is how it's addressed in some of the scientific literature where, I, where either they're making energy or they're not. It's not that hard to, to validate this. So we're in this weird spot of there's competing technologies and we're not sure which one is right yet. Have you seen a little bit about this process and does this, does this make any sense? Yeah, I think that one of the issues is, uh, I mean, when you get the group um, that, you know, has been research researchers that spend their whole career careers on fusion, then they're talking in one language amongst themselves and they kind of already know all the caveats and, and stuff like that and don't need to say it again every time. So then when an outsider comes into it, like you or me or a journalist, then they don't know all that stuff. And so it sounds a lot more exciting than it probably is fair to attribute to it at this point. So, um, you know, and, and I'm no expert on any kind of nuclear technology and, and including not fusion, but my understanding of one of the key key points is, is it generating um, energy, you know, net energy on a whole? So is putting out more energy than is coming in um, or they're putting into it to, you know, get get the ball rolling and they it depends what system you're considering so you know when they're considering this one small part of it you know the actual fusion reaction yes we've shown okay that makes more energy than what you're putting into that but then you've got another layer of you know getting getting it started um that is is one you know you might put a lot of energy in to get it started and then it's self-sustaining and, and produces energy over time and if you could continue to have it do that for you know um seconds minutes hours years 
then yeah, that would make a lot of energy, but for now they can't keep it going. And so the amount that they put in to get it started um, is not recouped. And then there's everything else on top of that, you know, there's layers and layers and layers. So, you know, um, how much cooling do you need for the the system as as a whole to stop all your materials melting? Um, and I don't know, what whatever other auxiliary power needs that you have, which are kind of boring engineering details to the scientists but in terms of actually having this be something that you can you know can provide energy to the world rather than consume energy from the world um those are key details so when you see um estimates like okay we're going to have this on the grid in the 2030s but we have not yet what do they say they haven't yet demonstrated net energy and um, delivering power to the grid. I mean, th- that is not seven years, <laughs> seven years away. Seven years away is when you have something working at a pretty small scale, um, you know, reliably working. And now you want to scale it up to a grid scale. That's a, like a 10 year process. Um, and they're so far from that. So I think that that's just something that, you know, you optimistically estimate to estimate to, you know, get your next grant a- approval um but yeah i think that that because when you read these articles you're like well why are we doing anything else you know why would we bother with compressed (laughs) energy storage why are we bothering with you know um new making new vessels to install more wind farms because they'll only be ready in the late you know 2020s and then by then we're only a couple of years away from nuclear fusion um providing all of our power and so i i do yeah let's make this episode where i just um rip into (laughs) energy journalists but it's a little bit irresponsible to make out like this is coming in 2030 um because it gives the impression we don't need to do any of the the stuff the hard stuff with our current imperfect technologies it's really easy to see you know technology of the future that doesn't exist yet and um not know any of its downsides for now it's just a perfect um a a perfect idea um to then make that compete against you know today's imperfect technologies is just a way to avoid you know doing anything about (laughs) about the energy transition and and you know ruin our climate in the process when it turns out oh it's not 2030 it's 2040 no it's 2050 no it's 2060 you know that's how all the rest of fusion has played out it's always getting pushed back and back and back and um yeah odds are that's what will happen here yeah eventually something will push through but it's not not in the next seven years that's for sure yeah maybe i i don't know but the I think they're an interesting piece of using heavier weight particles, right? They're using boron, which I think is number five on the periodic table versus hydrogen, which is number one. So obviously it's a higher, it's a higher weight material. And it may, it may have something to do with something unique about boron. And how, how many materials have we shot into a, a fusion generator setup to see if they actually generate, you know, it's sometimes the weirdest ideas are the ones that actually take action because so many pieces of technology we have today are just complete flukes. We didn't think it was going to happen. Some weird experiment, poof, there's Teflon, poof, there's, you know, the transistor. That's just, it's, it, it, that's what, that's what happens. And I, I'm not saying that these guys have the right answer. I'm just saying I don't doubt anybody at the moment because no one has done it. So if someone can provide data that says, yes, we have net energy, that's a big deal. And these haven't done it yet, but I'm not sure they're that far away from trying to demonstrate something like that. By 2030, they probably could. If this is real, 2030, 
they should be have something that's workable, you'd think. I'll just, no, I'll just uh, say the same thing again. I mean, so it's, it's, it's good. And I'm sure that by 2030, we will know whether this specific technology is worth pursuing or not. And no doubt there'll be plenty of other variations of fusion by then that look a little bit better. And eventually one of them will push through, but none of them are going to be solutions to the, <laughs> the current energy transition. They're not going to be ready in time. We need to get, um, you know, our electricity grids around the world need to have 90% of their emissions removed by 2030. So a technology that starts you know starts commercialization in 2030 is too late so this is really cool um this is really cool technology it might be the next energy transition uh, i'm sure eventually fusion is, is going to be a thing and then you know as we um start decommissioning wind farms we won't need to put new ones up because we'll be able to just build more fusion and uh, no doubt 2100 is going to look like that but it's not you know it's not part of the solution to climate change. Um, I'm sorry. It would be cool if it was. Our wind farm of the week is Red Barn Wind Park in Grant County, Wisconsin. Joel, that's up by you in uh, God's country. Cheeseland, maybe? Yeah, Wisconsin Public Service is powering more homes in Wisconsin thanks to the completion of the Red Barn Wind Park in Grant County, which is near the Iowa and Minnesota border. The site has been developed by Elite Clean Energy. 28 turbines, uh, 24 of them are GE 3.4 megawatt machines. Nice. And the other four are two and a half megawatt machines. Uh, the site, interestingly, uses slag cement for the foundations. So there's about 14,000 cubic yards of concrete with 55% slag cement replacement. So 45% is the standard Portland limestone cement. And, and that's another way of reducing CO2. There you go. Uh, the foundations are 450 uh, cubic yards of concrete, and there's 40 tons of reinforcing steel. Yikes. Uh, Invenergy Services appears to be doing the maintaining for the site, from what I could tell online. So congratulations to the Red Barn Wind Park in Wisconsin. You are our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Oh,